Hello, hello, hello. This is Sarah Pimbera. Very much looking forward to being at Horror on Main. I fully expect to see you all there. I want to see every single one of you there. Thank you very much. Very excited. Bye. Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. Hi, I am Erica T. Worth, author of the indigenous literary horror uh, novel White Horse, which is out now with Flatiron Macmillan. And it is about Carrie, who is an urban Indian woman who loves heavy metal and loves horror, but despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And when her, uh, her cousin Debbie discovers an ancient bracelet of her mother's and uh, Carrie touches the bracelet, um, her mother's ghost began to haunt Carrie and a monster invades her dreams and Carrie decides that she needs to find out what happened to her mother after all um, and some of the inspiration for this novel is urban Indian life in Denver Colorado and it's also just you know my love of heavy metal and horror which was something where I went to school in Idaho Springs people loved and it's also a love song to old Denver Hey, it's Well Red Beard. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I'm back full time on my channel. I would love for you to come over and subscribe. Just search Well Red Beard on YouTube. Um, I delve deep into horror. I've spent the last three years uh, reading a ton of independent small press horror. There's treasure to be found there, and I go out there and find it for you. I, I'm not afraid to tell you the books that aren't great while telling you the books that are great. I don't break hearts or hurt feelings, but if a book doesn't work for me, I will tell you that and I'll tell you why. I'm on a new mission now to, to go back and dig into some great horror from the 80s and 90s. I'm working my way through Robert McCammon's books. I'm gonna look at all of Peter Straub's work. I'm gonna do uh, Brian Keene. I've got aspirations to go back and do J.F. Gonzalez. A lot of the greats, so you have a good idea of where to start. I have a video up for J.F. Gonzalez's Survivor, so you can see what all the fuss is about. I recently read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, so you can see what all the fuss is about. Uh, I just want you to come over and subscribe. I'm trying to grow the thing. I appreciate you taking a look at it. This is Well Read Beard. I hope you're enjoying all your books as much as I am. If not, you're reading the wrong damn books. An agency that sends social workers into the homes of grieving families to impersonate dead loved ones. The kind old woman who saved a teenager's life, but who now finds herself haunted by the weight of a cheated suicide. And the daughter of a candlestick maker as she tries to survive a painful existence after her father's execution for making human chandeliers of drunken cowboys. These stories and more ranging from supernatural to the frighteningly domestic, splatterpunk to the weird and cosmic, stain the pages of Cut to Care, a collection of Little Hurts by Aaron Dryers. These are stories about caring too much in a world that doesn't always care for you back. Also featuring an exclusive introduction by writer-director Mick Garris, creator of Masters of Horror. Cut to Care by Aaron Dryers. 
a collection of little hurts. Out now. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we're joined by a great friend of our show, of the show, uh, Mercedes M. Yardley. Say hello, Mercedes. Hi, everybody. Today, we have a wonderful guest on. His name is Chuck Wendig, author of Wanderers and the upcoming, as of tomorrow, uh, Wayward. Say hello, Chuck. Hello, Chuck. Hi, guys. <laughs> and uh, if you are interested where you can find the show, you can find us on any audio platform, Alexa, whatnot. Uh, want the video version? Go to YouTube, go to TikTok, pretty much any social media platform. If we're not there, let us know. Um, today, we are going to focus on Wayward, but we're going to cover a whole lot more, I assume. So let's dive into the baseline question. Chuck, what got yeah. you into horror? Uh, like specifically what was my first horror thing? Oh man. Um, so yeah, that, that's a good question. It's yeah, really like, whatever your interpretation is. Uh, we, we don't have any guidelines with that. <laughs> oh man. Like when I was a kid, horror, the very idea of horror freaked me out. Cause my sister told me, she's like, Oh, there's this movie called the exorcist and people basically had heart attacks and died during it. So I, I kind of got it in my head at a very early age that horror had a mystical kind of power. Like horror was itself horror like it was evil for its sake of being evil uh and then i think the thing that really uncorked it for me was i went to the video store and i assume we all kind of grew up roughly in the same area era of the video store right brennan and i are the younger one but we did grow up in the 90s so we, yeah okay so you still had the video store your tail end of blockbuster <laughs> era right we were he's the saying last i'm generation. old is what he's saying <laughs> no 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 when i grew up in the video store yeah we grew up in the video store era. all right so yeah uh, you know, my mom would take me to the video store and it would be like, yeah, get whatever you want. And she's like, well, you know, and I knew I liked science fiction and I saw there was a movie uh, about an alien called Alien. And I was like, I'm sure that's fine. I could just rent that. And uh, I don't know if I was 10 years old or whatever. And uh, we rented it and I didn't quite realize until I was into it. I'm like, oh, this is like a horror movie, I think. Uh, and I loved it. And it was just amazing. And then my sister at one point put um, Robert McCammon's swan song in my hand. And then it, I think that was the the final nail in that horror coffin. At that point, I was I was, uh, you know, in the tomb, locked in with the rest of you ghouls. And there it was. Geiger's artwork, um, the the designer for those that don't know, the designer for the sets of, of Alien, um, his art, it, he's one of my favorite artists because he just what he does with angles and, and reflects on just a mesh of so many things is, I don't know. It, it, it just hypnotizes you. I mean, I could see the same piece of artwork that he's done and, and always walk away with something different. Um, Mercedes jump in. If you like, if not, Brennan, take us away. Take us away, Brennan. I just barely saw alien for the first time a couple of years ago. So did you really, I loved it. 
Oh, yeah, that... we, we played the alien game, you know, where you have yeah. to be really quiet. It has the microphone. If you're too loud it, playing the game, it comes after you. And and my friend's like, you haven't seen this. And you, we watched it as a writer's group and it was phenomenal. But I can't yeah. imagine that as as like a kid, you know, seeing yeah. that as a kid, seeing that as an adult, seeing that as a kid. It's a perfect I mean, movie. My mind, the first one. Yeah, the first one's fairly perfect. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. legit, um, you know, haunted house movie in space, really. Monster movie. Oh, amazing. Uh, Brennan, Brennan, take us away, sir. Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll throw my thoughts in there too. I, I think that you, you know, I, I love the idea of you coming to it as an adult, Mercedes, because it's. I, I feel like I watched it differently as a kid than an adult. Like a, like Chuck said, it's a haunted house movie. But when you're watching it with young eyes, I mean, it's it's just it, it's more of a prototypical monster movie. But then you get to kind of appreciate it on more and deeper levels as you get older and kind of garner a better understanding of it. Um, but let's talk about uh, the exorcist actually, Chuck. I, oh, yeah. One thing that you said that caught my attention was the whole notion of, I guess, audience reactions, visceral audience reactions, you know, people having a heart attack at the exorcist. Right. Um, it feels like we, that doesn't happen anymore. When that I mean, was the to last a terrifier, time, right? The terrifier films of the, yeah, the terrifier that story I really again. i haven't heard that. okay oh, let's yeah. talk about that because i want to talk about how you don't hear movies really getting that anymore um what do, you, what do you think is behind that you think we're desensitized or i think first of all most of them i mean honestly i think most of that story was marketing <laughs> the story was always the, the exorcist stories were kind of marketing tales they weren't really actually happening um but i do think there was some truth to it not the heart attack thing but some people being very upset and running out of the theater and stuff and I think ultimately that's because Exorcist, you know, was of an era of film. The 70s was an era where like it really upgraded our cinematic capabilities. And so we were both with special effects and um, just the sort of directors taking, you know, an auteur sort of like deeper way to tell these stories. Um, and it was something that we weren't seeing as much before that. So, I mean, the 70s is an explosion of the horror genre in a way that it wasn't before, um, in a way that's genuinely scary. Uh, and so I think for audiences, that was something that was really new, whereas now it's kind of hard to do something that's legitimately like, oh, I've really changed the game, so to speak. I mean, you can do some things with special effects and some things mm -hmm. with audio effects. I mean, obviously, Jurassic Park, for as much as it's not really a horror movie, though, I mean, it has some real horror movie, you know, core, I mean, even though it's for kind of for quote unquote for kids. Um, you know, that was maybe a time when you had some really serious audience reactions, right? People like, I mean, how many times did people go see Jurassic Park? It was like, you know, I think I saw like five times in the movie theater. It's just one of those things you did. And so that was sort of a communal audience experience in a different way and a lot of um, thrills, chills, you know, uh, uh, frights and, and all that good stuff. So uh, Terrifier 2, as I understand it, is just a viscerally disgusting movie um, in ways that are great or not great, depending on your opinions of that sort of thing. So I guess that's maybe why the audience reactions are... Uh, back that they're really pushing a limit in a way that um, a theatrical release doesn't usually. Star Wars Empire Strikes Back when they did a edited, I forget how it's phrased, but the when uh, special editions or whatever. Well, when Lucas came back in the ninety in the before the first one came out, he came out with the original trilogy in theaters. That was the first time I saw Empire Strikes Back with my father. Yeah, so I was a I was a I don't know nine ten whatever it was. And I was just hypnotized. And for me, that was, we're talking about experiences in theaters where it just like, it, it pulls you to a whole new level. And that's what it did for me. And 
a second time that that's not hard is uh, the Fellowship of the Rings. I mm. I was blown away with the trailer when it came out. I was a young kid, and then when I saw it, I didn't really know how to react. It's like the world disappeared, and that movie was all that existed. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Mercedes. I, I have a question too. Uh, so now that we're watching when a show comes out, we're not having that theater experience like we used to, right? Where right. you know. You're waiting for it to come out. You're getting it on a red box. You're getting it on one of your things. Do you feel that that kind of disseminates our experience? Like it used to be, you know, we're all going to go watch the Fellowship of the Ring. We all watched it. It was what was out. We all watched it. We all shared it. And now I feel like it's kind of uh, pitter pattering. Like people go see things at different times. We're kind of missing that. I mean, do you feel like communal experience? Is that what you're going for? Or do you think that by being able, like, be more accessible to other people that we're still sharing that experience? Like, I feel like kind of some of the things about, oh, this movie really hit us. It was really different. Like Blair Witch, right? Kind of turned everything on its yeah. head. It was like the the found footage, you know, beginning of that. Would that have been as effective if we all hadn't seen it at the same time, if we were seeing it at different times? Well, Blair Witch might have, I mean, it, arguably Blair Witch did hit that way because it hit weirdly, like it kind of built, Blair Witch built in ways that like, some of the, you know, some of the other things don't like Jurassic Park was just everybody descended upon the theater at one time. And I think Blair Witch had week after week, it kind of kept doing a thing because people weren't talking about it so much. They were just like, you have to go, but they didn't say what it was. So I think that's, you know, there's also kind of different sort of mounting cinematic experiences that we also still don't get because we are, as you say, sort of spreading out to our houses. I think probably the only thing recently that's like, I can think of that we all like everyone has to go is like the Avengers movies, right? Like everybody has their the Marvel thing has really taken over, you know, for whatever one feels about that, good or bad. They they've taken over movies, and that's kind of the dominant blockbuster. Everyone goes and sees this thing so they don't get spoiled the next day. They share in these moments. Um, I don't know that these most recent wave of Marvel movies has had any of those meaningful moments that I hear about, but Certainly, like the Avengers, you know, Endgame stuff with the hammer and all that, the Thanos, like, seem to be like they capture those audience reactions on YouTube to be like, you can go watch to see how everyone as one experiences this moment. But I think the pandemic kind of kicked a lot of it in the teeth as well, because there's not as much ability to go to the movies. I mean, there is now we, we go, but it took a while to get the, the wheels back on that bus. Right. It kind of kicked everything in the teeth. <laughs> everything. Everything, yeah. The finale for Seinfeld, I remember my family and I used to love watching that. We would watch it with a big group for the f- season finale. That that kind of was the last time I can remember where it was kind of like that for, for television, specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, nowadays it's like, <laughs> this is a good example. Uh, I ran off real quick to give my wife her laptop. Audio listeners can't see that, but... I'm bringing that up because when I came back, my son, he's almost three. He's like, dad, help, help. And I'm like, you can watch a commercial every now and then little buddy. And then I walk by. Cause you know, he, he gets upset if there's an ad, but I, I'm not a big, it, that doesn't teach him patience. And um, I, you know, you get uh, instant gratification with the way everything's functioning right now. And that kind of goes into the whole, you know, not having a moment or a communal moment where you can just enjoy something. Um, can I steer it towards the Wanderers or do you guys want to stay in this? Well, I mean, I don't hate 
if you want to talk about my books, but I mean, I don't <laughs> you insist. <laughs> if you insist. <laughs> for starters, I don't like watching well, Chuck's face when you talk about his book. I'm excited for that. <laughs> came on July 2nd, 2019. So that, I mean, that's in the heart of the scariest part of the actual pandemic that happened. Um, oh, wait, no, I got my. Oh, year. no, no, it came out pre pre pandemic. Oh, wait, no, yeah. I'm mixing up my year. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, we've that been came in out this so long that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my apology, apologies. Um, that came out right before the pandemic, a f- yeah. few months before. Wow, that is weird. Time flies by too quick. Yeah. What the hell was that? Sorry, something fell. I'm oh. having things. My house is haunted. That's all. Oh, that's all right. It, it was very just angry like, that we're talking about this stuff. Yeah, your house. Just like a pandemic. Jen Shepherd oh. movie. Um. <laughs> So it comes up before that, and I'm curious, like, how how do you personally feel when you write this big book? Because, I mean, it's in a lot of people's hands. Yeah. And, you know, it's reflective of, uh, correct me if I'm putting in uh, putting words in your mouth, but it's reflective of a lot of things. But one of them is, you know, super hardcore, radical right wingers. Yeah. And it's, it's scary. It's scary because it's obviously before um the and i'll say it on air domestic terrorist attack january 6th but yeah like if that continued you got you got what you got with this with that president creel and his people and um i just want to hear what your thoughts are on on really any way you want to take that quite that was really a comment not a question so whichever way you want <laughs> to take see, that man i i agree all of that is true <laughs> period end of sentence we did it uh, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, that was definitely one of those things where the book was, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I always say when I wrote this book, I was a greedy, lazy writer because I, um, you know, I had all these sort of anxieties and things and fears and concerns for the world. And um, I didn't research these things for Wanderers or after Wanderers or during the writing. It was just stuff I was reading kind of on my own and learning about because uh, you know, whether it's, you know, tonguing a broken tooth or like helping actually assuage my anxieties. I was just reading about this stuff, whether you're talking about the, you know, white encroaching sort of right-wing Christian fascism or, uh, you know, post-antibiotic age or climate change, you know, pandemics, obviously. Um, so I was reading about all that stuff just because I was interested in it. And uh, when it came time, I like I had the core idea for Wanderers like four years before I wrote it or even sold it. it the idea of people coming together and sleepwalking to an unknown destination and like an idea is you know writers love to sort of lionize their ideas but ideas are meaningless um without something to go with them without a story to go with them and i had no story i just had this sort of mechanism uh so it wasn't until like all like i was reading all this stuff and then the trump heiress kind of started he wasn't yet president or wasn't even really running yet but it, he was talking about running and um so all of these things came together and it kind of catalyzed for me what this book was. And it was sort of, I always say like Wanderers became my anxiety Voltron. It was just like all of my anxieties coming together at one. And I'm like, well, I could, I could milk this over like five different types of books, but I'm like, I'm just going to literally cram all of this into one story and and make it uh, do its thing. So that's, you know, we were talking about is definitely the, the leg of that particular anxiety Voltron for sure. And I love the idea of just knowing it starts with the people walking toward, uh, I don't know if you had the destination in mind at the time, but a destination. <laughs> yeah. um, and because that's that's the way it unfolds. That's the way it unfolds to the reader is just something weird is happening and come along for the wander along for the journey, if, if you like. Yeah. Um, 
So I wonder when you pitched this and the ideas started to kind of formulate, did you know what a big bastard it was going to be? No, I did not. I had no idea how big it was going to be because up until that point, I think the longest book I'd ever written was about 125,000 words. And uh, usually I marked my books with what you would probably consider thriller pacing. Like I was always trying to be like, let's keep it fast and moving. And so I was writing Wanderers and I, you know, I was about a week before deadline on that book. And I was, I think, 180,000 words into it. And I was nowhere near ending this book. So I was like a week away and I contacted my editor and I was like, so this is obviously not ideal. I am not, I've never whiffed on a deadline before. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to whiff on this one either. I'm going to make it work. Like I figured out, like I'll do a Lostian sort of time jump. I can totally, you know, make this, bring it together in in this last week of writing and, and you know, get you something by deadline. Uh, and she was like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I'm she's probably nicer about it. Um, but she was like, don't do that. Do not do any of the things you just said. Um, she's like, just make it as big as it needs to be and you and get it to me when you can get it to me. And I was like, are you, are you okay? Or did you, are you being are, like, are you a hostage right now? That's a weird thing for an editor to say some to, to a writer that you don't want it on deadline. So she, um, no said, yeah, just give it, give it the time to breathe. And I added another hundred thousand words over the next, like three to six months of writing that book. So, uh, it was good. And she gave me that time to make it, uh, the epic beast of weirdness that it ended up being. And uh, did you how much of the finished ginormous product um, made it to the final the the final version versus how much did you I'm always amazed when somebody writes this like doorstopper and we have them on and they're like, yeah, you know, it's 240,000 words, but we actually cut another 80,000. Yeah, no, believe it or not, I added a little to it and we didn't cut (laughs) it. It was all line edit cuts. It was very minor. The actual story, um, you know, the draft for that I started with, the only really change that made from first draft to second that was significant was uh, in the beginning, Benji was a little too nice. And so, you know, it was like one of those things where fiction is really interesting that in the beginning, it's like walking. If you're going to walk across the country, you're going to walk East Coast to West Coast. The, you know, the angle you point your feet in really matters depending on how far astray you're going to be off your destination. If you point your feet just two degrees to the left, by the time you hit West Coast, you're going to be in an entirely different spot than you anticipated. And so just having that core change in the beginning where it sort of like roughed up his character a little bit and had this kind of scandal in his past that he was removed from the CDC and he's, you know, tarnished as a, as a sort of a person, which also makes him more interesting, I think, to um, Black Swan when it looks for him. Uh, it cascaded throughout the book and just sort of tightened the whole thing up and gave it kind of a, his character specifically a really interesting through line. And uh, that was it. Otherwise it was the book that I wrote ended up being largely the book that landed and wayward was the same way. Now, some of my other books are not that way. Book of accidents was, there was a lot of changes, not huge changes, not like dramatically, we're going to cut the whole middle out, but so much like rewiring and uh, reconnecting chapters. So it took a lot of editing to do that, but uh, wanderers and wayward were, weirdly uh, together somehow. I don't, and I don't know how, because I, you know, they were strange to write. They were very different for me. I didn't outline them, which I usually am very much a rigorous outline. Uh, they were strange to write. The amount, the length of uh, Wanderers wasn't, it wasn't told, you weren't told to like trim it down. And it makes me think of like, we had Peter Schraub on last year and we asked oh. him like Blue Rose trilogy, I, I don't say this with hyperbole that specifically Coco changed my life. Like yeah, that Coco, is yeah. Coco for me is 
the one book that it's on its own tier um, just for personal reasons. And he was talking about the throat, the throat being the third book in the trilogy of the blue rose, uh, blue rose trilogy. And he said, that's his favorite book. And that um, his publisher told him the length of the book is uh, how, how do you word it? The length of the book is basically equivalent to the reception by the readers, meaning the longer the book, especially his length of a book, um, it's shorter than Wayward Wanderers, I believe, but he was basically told to cut it down or it's not going to get a great reception. Um, I want to say that came out in the 90s, but it came out at least two decades ago, and um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Like he, He was one of the biggest writers ever, and yeah. he's being told this, and and he's already well set in the in his career. But do you think it's just a maybe a, a editor by editor, case by case scenario, or it's probably editor by editor? I mean, I've heard some data, and this is older data. This is not like recently this year or anything that um, readers like bigger books because they have a perceived value to them. It's like, oh, I'm paying for a book, but I'm getting more for my money, which I don't you know, it's, they generally cost more too if they're bigger. So I don't know that that's actually accurate <laughs> in reality, but the, the feeling is like, oh, it's a big chunky read and I can, uh, you know, sit here and read this for a long time. And it will, it's like a meal that will last me. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I know different books, like, you know, we did trim down book of accents a bit. Um, I think from 180 to 150, 160, something like that. So uh, I think it's for me, at least as a writer, it's really a book by book basis. And I, I, I appreciated that my editor was like, the book needs to be as long as it needs to be, um, which is to, you know, a, a, obviously sort of at the, on the one hand, that feels kind of lazy. Like, well, it's like some sort of Zen Yoda sort of thing. Well, it just needs to be as long as it needs to be, man, don't worry about it. Uh, but I mean, I also think that that's sort of true in an implicit sort of creative way. And I think demanding that a book be shorter based on market perceptions rather than based on what the story should be um, is it sort of a rough path to follow? Fair. Mercedes, you got anything that you'd like to throw in? Yeah. Well, um, going to Wayward, uh, what would you, what would you cut out? I mean, there's, there's so much there right. that is so rich. And I mean, yes, if you're going to streamline it, you know, you take away this backstory, you take away these thoughts, but they were, yeah. you would lose so much. I mean, that, that would just be a shame. You know, yeah, that would be the yeah, I don't want to yeah, I don't want to lose any of that. Like sometimes I know there's the feeling, you know, and again, you read this sort of advice when you're reading things about like thriller pacing or shorter books, like, oh, you want to cut the fat or kill your darlings. And I, I think there's obviously value to that in the right kind of book, but I also think like you would never tell, you know, a chef to like, we'll cut the fat because the fat is the flavor. I mean, obviously you don't want to just have a mouthful of lard when you're eating it, but I mean, like, you know, there's a rendering to fat. There's a, you know, different kinds of balances to spices, not everything. Sometimes we treat writing like it's this really utilitarian, like, well, if it doesn't serve the greater purpose, it must go. But storytelling isn't like a, a math equation where you're like, well, if it doesn't solve the math equation, you know, when you're making soup, like it's not just like, well, does this spice add nutrition? Then you do not add it. Like you add it because it tastes good. I don't know. You just, it brings a texture and a depth to something. It's like, you know, I'm not a big epic fantasy reader, but you know, like feast scenes, I I would be like, well, maybe you want to cut that. But that's like, 
the literal meat and potatoes of epic fantasy. It's got you got to be in there. They got to have the feast scene and the tapestries, and everybody knows what kind of weird dragon meat they're eating. And it's very, it's like a very specific thing. And people want that when they read that because they want that kind of texture and granularity to the world they're reading. And I think you know why cut that if you don't have to. Yeah. Well, one Great of my favorite question. things about Wayward was the way that you had all of your characters had such distinctly different voices. And when you're saying that you didn't, you know, outline wanderers, I. I'm baffled because you just had so much going on (laughs) and, and these characters were so different. And when they were written from each, you know, different point of view, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed you didn't have their voices blend, you know, like, I mean, that's one of the things I really like about your, your work, Chuck is, is you, your characters are so distinct and memorable, but that you were able to do that in, you know, essentially these two ginormous books and just it, I, 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 I just can't, I can't believe it. I mean, I would read it and I would be like, I know exactly who's speaking, you know? I mean, there are all these characters we're following in all these different ways. And I know that it's Matthew or I know that it's Pete or, you know, yeah. just, okay. I, I just, I, I just bow to that because that, that's amazing. That. That's a, it wasn't, it wasn't, sorry Chuck. To interject, I mean, it was Chuck, a, but it wasn't, you know, that's a great point. Yeah. By Chuck, it was right. This is Pete talking and yeah. I got it, you know? All right. I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like that's not a question. That's just a. Yeah, I am so not, that's a, that's a good comment. I will. You know what up. though? I, I have a question to uh, piggyback off that because I had kind of the, a, a similar thought, especially knowing that um, you know you kind of wrote this one, these ones by the seat of your pants, whereas you're a normal outliner. What's what strategies, if any, did you kind of put in place to keep track of? I mean, a, a book like this and. Uh, uh, pre and post apocalyptic book, it's going to have a big cast of characters and a lot of things yeah. to keep straight. How did you keep it straight? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, and that's the worst <laughs> answer. So um, best answer ever. Yeah, when I when I went to write Wanderers, Wanderers is the book that told me I don't know how to write books, and that was like a really good thing to learn. Hold up, what? Yeah, I know it sounds like it, you shouldn't. Wait. Explain that, man. You just blew my mind. That book is <laughs> well, fucking awesome. Because, like, also plug your books on point, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Oops. Sorry, guys. Up until this point, like, you, I think <clears throat> I had kind of mythologized or folklorized how I wrote a book, right? And, and it was generally pretty reliable. Like, I would get up in the morning and go out to the office and have a certain setup and set up my document a certain way in 2,000 words a day, and I would get to a book. Uh, you know, it's that whole button chair, right, every day kind of thing. And then... Yeah, and outlining was a really big part of my thing. Like I learned very early on, outlining was a part of my process, just an essential. Like I hated it, hate outlining, but I did it with every book. And sometimes those outlines were not for public consumption; they were definitely like the scrawlings of a psychopath with red yarn on the wall. But they were for me, and they worked. So, Wander is all I did in the beginning. Was I just wrote a few sample chapters of these characters to get their voices and to get a little bit of the plot going, and that's what I had it pitched to the editor on. And, uh, you know, it defied me at every turn as to how I write a book. Cause I would be like, some days I would sit and I would try to write and it'd be like 300, 500 words. Some days I would write and it'd be a 5,000 word day. And some days I couldn't write at all. I'd be like, you know what? I just need to take this day to do some research, um, and sort of suss some things out. Uh, in fact, actually when I, you know, met you at StokerCon, uh, Mercedes, like that was part of a trip that I drove across the West to Uray to actually do research for Wanderers. So um, all this stuff kind of was just like part of the process, but it wasn't necessarily like productive writing uh, until it was. And then sometimes it became very productive. So just 
everything I thought I knew about how I wrote a book, uh, Wanderers kind of bucked that trend. And I realized at that point that every book is its own weird, different animal. And uh, you can't really know how to write the next one because it's not this one. So once you figure out how to write the one you're writing, the next one's going to be different anyway. Uh, and I've instead of letting that be frustrating, because initially that's really upsetting when you're like, I think I know what I'm doing. And then you realize I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, that's that's a terrifying moment. But I kind of went with it and I sort of thought, well, maybe that's what's kind of awesome about writing, too, a little bit is that sense of free fall, that vertigo that you get from like, well, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to have to mess with it and figure it out. Um, so, yeah, I, I learned I don't know how to write a book and that's maybe good. I love the idea of writing, like, uh, I think you put it as sample chapters to get to know the characters. Yeah. I mean, I, I, how many times in my own work have I, you know, gone back to the second draft and said, I don't need, I need to know the information that's in here, but nobody needs to read this shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to Mercedes point about you, you know, being able to revisit uh, certain characters after leaving them behind for 20, 50, 100 pages and still uh, them feeling familiar I think that's exactly tied into that. You know, once you know and understand your characters, you know, it's like you don't necessarily always have to revisit an outline. Would they say this? Would they say that? Would they make this choice? You just kind of, you, you know, on an inkling. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I that's that's what stuck out most to me is the getting to know the characters to allow them basically to dictate where the story is going. Yeah. My favorite character in Wayward was Gumball, and I hope one day, I ser- I legit hope one day you write a book just in his perspective, because he, he, here's the thing, and and like, I, I'm just going to go on a limb and say, you, you guys are probably going to agree with this, but like, dogs are incredible because they, they sum up every good thing in the world, and, and, and the way you phrase it as the dog, they're simple statements. But they're so deep, yeah. and, and they're they're sad. They're really sad. I'm not going to go into detail because I'll spoil it. But the way he sees the world, um, he knows something's not right. But um, yeah. kind of like kind of makes you want to cry because it's like it's like looking through the eyes of a child. Yeah, dogs like vibe stuff. They even if they yeah. don't, I don't know how much they know in an intellectual sense, but like mm-hmm. they vibe. They totally get when something's wrong and. There's stress when there's something coming. Sometimes they kind of can tell you when something's up in you know in the air almost. It's cool. Yeah, I mean this. Go ahead, Mercedes. A lot smarter than we can be. You know, they don't don't let things affect them that we would let affect us. Like, oh, this person's status or this person, you know, has a good reputation. And a dog would just be like, yeah, no, mm -mm, you're awful. Yeah, they know. And it's a really you know everyone has that saying about how you can kind of tell about a person before you even know them. But if they get along with, in this case, dogs, uh, really good, uh, really good interpretation for that. But um, kind of throwing a wrench in wayward. But I want to go back to when you became a full time writer, late 90s. How how was that transition? Because I don't think we talk about this enough. And you're a really good person, I feel like, to to ask this question to. But I, I know that the best advice I've heard for when you become a full-time writer is make sure that you um you have the financial stability but was for whatever you want to speak on with this was it was it scary what was a scary position to be in i don't even know i know you got a family now i don't know if you had a family then or whatnot but no kids but yeah i was uh 
married into that. I mean, I didn't marry the point of being a full-time writer, but um, I think I was when I got married, I think it was actually becoming or leaning into the full-time writer. Thing. Yeah. So I started working um, freelance for game companies, predominantly White Wolf Game Studios doing horror games like Vampire and Werewolf and all this stuff. Uh, and eventually I also did some editing work for them um, and even some development design work. Uh, but generally it was writing. It was writing the fiction, writing the rules, writing, writing, writing. And so um, I, you know, knew how to be, they always say you need to be two of the three things, fast, friendly, and good. Uh, and I knew I was fast and friendly. I don't know that I was any good, but I definitely got stuff done quickly and I did it with a smile. And so they kept hiring me back. And uh, in doing so, I learned how to hit my deadlines and I learned how to sort of churn and burn content. When you're, I think, young, maybe it's a little easier to kind of just be like, I'm going to just do 5,000 words today. Or I'm going to, well, I think one time I wrote like 30,000 words in a weekend. I'm like, I'm doing this. This, this Yeah, let's get this done. Wait, and if you what? can do that enough, you know, I you know, I was only getting paid like, I don't even know, it was like five, six cents a word or something. But at a certain point, like if I can write a thousand words in an hour, you know, that's like 50 bucks an hour. And if I could kind of do that regularly and keep getting work, um, it, it, provided stability at that at that point financially um but it's still like weird because at that time there was no aca so there was no easy way to get insurance like i was just like well if i but die die that's just like <laughs> um oh no i got a cyst and it exploded and i'm dead so uh you know but having that um both getting married to someone who actually had health insurance helped and then when uh the time came that it was like we could get our own insurance that really changed the 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 game so to speak um the transition from freelance to being a novel writer was weird that was like a hard year because i learned there was no real good way to do both i couldn't keep up that kind of freelance schedule while also trying to write novels um and so i was like you know i'm going to take the this one year to try to make that work um and i did thankfully somehow that's interesting. And uh, Brennan Mercedes, take over after this. And I want to hear what all you guys have to say about this. Brennan and I have talked about this with a few guests. Um, maybe it's just the things that I see, but it seems like a lot of, I'll just say my generation, uh, writers, newer maybe, they, a lot of them seem to have the idea that, you know, I got to make it now or it's not going to happen sort of deal. So I'd like to know, Chuck, what you're, well, your opinion is on the longevity of pace and everything, I guess. Uh, I don't know a better way to phrase that. So I hope that made sense. Uh, like age, like how can you start at any time or um, yeah. as far specifically as your career goes, uh, if there is a, a good or a healthy mentality to have, if you want to be a full-time writer, if you were to say, this has worked for me, maybe it'll work for you. I guess that's a better way to phrase that. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's the weird thing is like you can only know by doing it. And I think you can do it at any age and start at any age. I don't think there's any sort of restriction there. I think there's there is a vibe like you're saying that if I haven't made it by X year, then it's too late. Like mm. and I, I don't think the publishing industry is really we, we like to con, uh, convince ourselves that it's just like a bunch of young people like we're all just writing wonderful fiction. We're all young. And I'm like, that's not really I mean. A lot of people don't start in their 40s and 50s getting published. And at that point, too, you also probably have a unique perspective and maybe more patience than someone who's in their 20s or 30s. I certainly did not have good patience at that age. Um, you know, so I, I think you kind of just start when you start and do it when you do it. And they're, it's like they're really gross. But I mean, all writing advice is bullshit. Um, but I always say that bullshit fertilizes. Uh, so it's not that it's... <laughs> 
it's not that it's useless. It's just, you can't treat it like it's gospel. You can't like hear people's advice to you as a writer and be like, that's what I will do then because it never works. Like if people want to know how I did it, I'm like, well, first you have to get a freelance job in the game industry for 10 years. And it's like, what? No, I don't want to do that. You're like, exactly. You can't follow the path that I follow. Just like I couldn't follow the path that anybody, it's just how it is. We all kind of, you know, I always say we dig our own hole through the mountain and then we blow it up behind us. So <laughs> you, the, you just do it by doing it. And it, that's the hardest part to tell people. Like it, even my own son who wants to be like, he likes art and he likes writing and stuff. So sometimes I'm like, you just have to do it. And he wants kind of it to be good immediately. And he wants it to be, you know, done and perfect. And I'm like, it's just, that's not how it's going to work. It's a messy, ugly process in which your worst critic will be yourself probably through all of it. Um, and you just have to just keep digging. That's perfect. Mercedes. Yeah. Well, again, I think it comes to that instant gratification thing, you know, where you, st- I mean, my generation, I feel so old. Chuck and my, our generation, <laughs> our generation, <laughs> when we were children, Chuck, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had to slog, you know what I mean? It wasn't like we had to slog. We had to sit through the whole show so, you know, we had to sit through the commercials. We had to wait till Friday night for X-Files. It, we didn't have it on demand, but we we had to work and work and work and work and fail and work. And like, I feel like my children, I'm trying to teach them to work, but they don't know how to work. Like we knew how to work. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just, things come fast. Things come instant. If you don't do it right away, you're a failure. If you don't achieve your success, you know, my, my, my 15 year old is like having a breakdown because she wants, you know, doesn't know exactly what she wants to do for college. And I'm like, sweetheart, you have time. But that concept of you have time is not what society is pushing, right? So, I mean, and I tell people all the time, writing isn't like dancing. Your body's not going to give out and you can't dance anymore. You can't write anymore. Like I'm too old to write now. That's not how it works. You know, we can, we can always write. We can always do these things. And um, I had this really cool meeting with Mort Castle, who's just this phenomenal writer, person in the horror industry. And I was like, I feel like I missed my window of opportunity. And he he literally, he, he put his, his finger on my forehead and he goes, I release you from the clock. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, you have all the time in the world. And yeah. like, I cried, you know, because everyone's like, hurry, hurry, fast, fast, faster. <clears throat> and he's like, no, that's not how writing works. Yeah. So I needed someone to physically tell me you are okay. You know, to, you can, so release us, release us, Chuck. Release yeah. this from the clock. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, you're all released from the clock. I mean, that's the thing, right? People don't get it. Like writing is one of the most super forgiving things you can do. You can be like, I wrote it and it wasn't as good. So I'm going to rewrite it or I'm going to go back and fix it. You have as many shots at, at the goal as you want to take. Like it's just no one's there protecting it except you. You're the only goal you're, you're trying to score on. So, I mean, you just keep doing it. You just keep working on it. So many other jobs, even painting a painting, you're going to be like, well, if I screw this one up, I'm going to, I've screwed it up. It's too late. But you really can't forever screw it up. You can just keep, you know, like I said, you're just digging. You're just digging ditches in a lot of ways. I mean, it's obviously there's a lot of art and craft and beauty to writing too. But I mean, and the sort of mechanical component to it, you're just digging ditches. So just keep digging. See, Chuck Windig says you guys are released. Yeah, you released. You're anything. free. You're free. Do we're on the forehead. Feel <laughs> <laughs> it on my forehead. We're close to finding out when those bodies, uh, the location. A locale for those bodies. <laughs> yeah. I, I've already given you the codes, uh, and you don't even know it yet. If you go back and replay it backward, you'll hear the, the longitude and latitude. It's great. I, I love how, it, I, with both books, we were in um, Wanderers. 
I love how I learned so much shit about things I didn't even know to learn about. <laughs> I'm talking about like the science, the, the, um, I want to talk about specifically one thing uh, It got me thinking where, when the world ends, who is really important, what's really important. And it really makes you stop thinking because, um, Chuck, I know you know this now because I showed you the picture, but I work at a wastewater treatment plant. And before that job, I didn't think about anything. I didn't think about the process of flushing the toilet, what happens. Yeah. Um, and that's just one example. Um, and Stephen King's The Stand, he talks, he covers that pretty well with uh, starting a local government and uh, having the um, the technical minds behind, uh, you know, turning back electricity. And if everything is ready to be turned on and nothing was properly shut down, you're going to have a lot of explosions. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just really, it's neat because you brought this world of fiction, your own world of uh, the end of all happening. And um, the ending for Wayward is, and, and Wanderers is, um, it makes you wonder if there's going to be more, uh, but you do it in a way where you can end it and it means a lot, or you can pick up uh, where you left off and it makes sense. Um, I hope, yeah. Yeah. No, no question there. So Brendan, why don't you save my ass like every episode? <laughs> I, you know what? I'm still ruminating on the fact that I, I, I can't even count how many times I've heard you say to a guest, you know that I work at a wastewater treatment treatment plant because of the pictures I've sent you. And I'm wondering how we're still getting guests. I'm oh, terrified. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think late night emails, just weird <laughs> wastewater emails. It's, it's literally shoveling shit. I'm like, hey, Chuck, look at this while I listen to your book. <laughs> because of the people we're surrounded by, they're not that weird but they're weirdos too i guess i don't know <laughs> yeah no it works i mean that's fascinating i honestly find it fascinating well, it's, I, seriously i was shoveling shit and you your book got me through it so thank you sorry oh, thank you. Man. <laughs> no metaphor there no better so compliment no better compliment yeah. <laughs> so are, well, this is an aside but are they doing an audiobook of of wayward oh yeah same mom would that be uh i forget it's like 38 or something it's like a lot it's a lot of hours so that can get, to get you through a lot of hours at your job yeah there, Pat. yeah <laughs> just hope no one from my job's listening but yeah like. <laughs> well, i wanted to talk about kind of the you have such a moral compass in your characters that tends to flip so i'm yeah. like i'm gonna hate this guy and i'm gonna hate this guy forever and then i'm like oh no now i'm seeing things from his perspective and i have sympathy and i hate that yeah right or you know, this person is redeeming themselves a little better. This person is, is, you know, I thought was good. And now I'm like, Oh, yeah. And it's interesting because when I think of you, I think of a high, you know, I think you're a very highly principled moral person. You call things oh, out wrong. like Nazis, no. for example, I'm a, right. I'm a <laughs> <monster>. <laughs> I'm a but, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, cause this is this is related but not related. Twitter's just crazy right now, right? And I know that <laughs> Twitter's have on a lot fire of, right now. Yeah. 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 And I know that you get a lot of I I find very undeserved ire in your direction and people behave poorly. Um based on some things you say and views yeah. and things that I sure. when something happens like that as a reader and as a fan and as a supporter. If we see somebody that is um, being unfairly targeted or doxxed or something like that in the Twitterverse on any social media, how do you suggest we help? Oh, how can gosh. We help? I don't know. I think usually the best bet is to ask the person who's under siege and see if they need anything. 
Um, it's hard to know if you want to sometimes leap to defense, but if it's not a real thing, I mean, it sounds weird because it's real. It's true in that there's harassment and terror happening, but sometimes the people behind it, yeah, yeah, they're trolls and sometimes they just want the attention. So you don't always know, but sometimes I think too, if you see someone carrying water for trolls unknowingly, like they're a person, you know, even if they're an acquaintance online who seems to have fallen for because that's that's the sometimes the thing is these people online will leave sort of malevolent traps. They'll like disinformation and misinformation can very easily be picked up by people who mean well. Um, who I mean, I've had people tell me things about myself, even just the Tolkien stuff, the, the stupid like you hate Tolkien. Like I've seen that get carried occasionally. Like someone like a journalist will like, wow, this person really doesn't understand Tolkien. I'm like, I did not. None of this is a true thing, and you're just you have a screenshot of a screenshot of a thing that's snipped out of an entire conversation and you feel like you've just shared wisdom with the world or like an outrage or whatever it is, but it's like, it's not true. So sometimes you can reach those people if they're a real person, you know, because they can be like, Oh, I didn't realize that. And I've seen that happen sometimes where people be like, Hey, this didn't actually happen the way you are saying that it happened. Chuck Wendy does not burn down libraries personally with his, you know, his lighter. Uh, and they'll be like, Oh, I, you know, I totally should have looked into that a little more, but um, generally speaking, I guess your best bet is always to ask the person under siege and see if they need anything or if they're just anticipating that this is a normal, you know, the the sort of red red tide, the algae bloom of a weird social media existence. Right. Because you don't want to like unmeaningly throw more. more right. Yeah. Because you never know. You're like, oh, I just stirred up. I kicked over more bees and now there's more bees. <laughs> now so you're drowning sorry. and you have bees coming yeah, out. Now there's you. drowning in bees. It's now and the bees are on fire and it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've oh, seen it people sounds like the end of the world. Exactly. Welcome to the apocalypse. Socially. I mean, you, you see like peers in the sense where they're writers too. people attack Ramsey Campbell or Stephen King or, or you Chuck. Yeah. And I mean, I've learned at this point just to stay the hell out of it. I'm not, I'm not yeah. telling anyone to do one thing or the other, but I always wonder, Oh, here's a good one. And they'll get to what I was about to say. Last year, and I've talked about this with Joe on here, Joe Lansdale. Um, some I don't even know how this got brought up, but people were random people were telling Joe how it wasn't okay for his own children to inherit the money Joe made. Like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was insane. I I don't understand it. Like, for it makes me wonder if. I don't think most people would say that shit, not to just Joe, but um, which would yeah. be a very bad idea. But for oh, yeah, don't, yeah, don't mess with champion Joe on that one. What are you doing? <laughs> I don't think most people would say this stuff to your face because I've had my own. I've had my own unwarranted, really just the most heinous things you could say to someone. And and I, I've run into someone before, like walked by at a convention and I I mean, I, I, I'm not giving glare and death stares or anything because I don't give a shit what they think, but I'm not hearing anything to my face. And I no, think I mean, I, I've, ex- the- I've experienced it. That's all I'm saying. And, and I yeah. think that people feel empowered. It's like being drunk and you're like, no, nah, I can say what I really think. Yeah, you know? well, they do. Like, I mean, all the Star Wars stuff I got, I, I didn't get any of it in person. And I, you know, I've met a lot of people and I've gone to Star Wars conventions. and I've never had someone come up to me and be like, I'm mad at you for Star Wars. You broke it. And like, no one's no actual people are mad about that. They're just, they're like clout chasing and anonymously being trolls and whatever. Generally makes me wonder if they have experience uh, and I'll have no, none of us will know for sure, but like, have you ever experienced 
something truly tragic in your life because that puts a everything in perspective right or you know like a pandemic that's global maybe that will make you think yeah unfortunately the pandemic just made people more feral because they were more online than, oh my god less, you know it was like yeah, it made it worse my um one of my friends she uh she delivered well transported um bodies from covid when it started she Ooh. um she's with the reserve and she's just like such a sweet person and just I, I, it, I'm bringing this up because like you, you look at someone and there, it's just a cover and you don't know the story inside yeah. unless you actually read the book. And sometimes even then there's stuff that you don't know. I'm not telling you guys anything new. It's just worth repeating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Think of the bigger stuff. Brennan, is there uh do you want to talk anything else more way about wayward or would you like to go in another direction? Yeah. I want to throw one more question out. Um, you mentioned that your your favorite character was Gumball. Uh, we were talking before we started recording. I absolutely loved Pete Corley. I thought yeah. he was just this big, yes. loud, larger than life, lovable guy. So I, I'm curious, Chuck, like, do you have a character that really resonates, one character that really resonates with you? Not necessarily this is, you know, the embodiment of you, but just one person you really enjoyed writing in that series. Oh, that's Pete. Yeah. Because Pete represents a kind of character. Like I think of them as like the Molotov thrower. They're like someone who enters the scene with a lit bottle and they just like, where am I going to throw this? <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yeah, literally and figuratively. Like you don't like as a writer, I think that's fun writing these sort of chaos neutral, these like, you know, center of the D&D alignment chart characters. Like, cause you really never exactly know what they're going to do. And if I, as a writer, don't really know what they're going to do, then the reader really doesn't know what they're going to do. The thing is you can't have a whole book full of those people. Because then it's just like cats on fire running into each other, <laughs> which I'm sure is amusing in a sort of a digital simulation kind of a way, but uh, not useful narratively. But having one person in there who is sort of a destabilizing presence on the narrative is both fun because you're just like, oh, let's see what they're going to do now. Let's push some buttons and oh, they blew some stuff up. Cool. Um, but it's also useful because you can, you, you know, you can use them to generate that kind of tension and energy. Uh, and chaos and, and allow it to sort of change those pivot points and and kind of uh, adjust the the shape of the thing without uh, people expecting that to happen. So they're really useful uh, and fun to write. So Pete is that for me. My favorite my cool. favorite decade of music, well, decades, is the 60s and 70s rock and roll. And, nice. and I mean, I even got a Led Zeppelin tattoo. Like, I, I love that genre. Yeah. And Pete 100% fits in. You throw them in with, you know, Sex Pistols or, or The Who or really yeah. any of those found in bands. Yeah. It makes sense. And the fact they have lyrics in it at one point, it's just you going back to something that Mercedes said, how you have very um, distinct voices. It, it's like, I don't know how the hell you didn't outline it for starters, but you rounded them all out. And it's not like we got character arcs per se um, for everyone. You do a Pete for sure. but. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really impressive, man. And it, as a writer, um, it's hard to not sound like I'm kissing your ass. But as a writer, I, mean, I don't hate it. If, it's, if we're just being honest, I don't entirely hate it. The internet no, I mean, is place, so I don't mind the occasional like. You know, <laughs> yeah, but, but at, like we've gotten rando comments from on the show about how we kiss up. It's just like, well, we got people on that we like. So yeah, I mean, not, right? I mean, that's exactly it. Yeah. We're not going to interrogate anyone. We're going to be like, how'd you do this, motherfucker? But <laughs> this book sucks. 
Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> we do have some bones to pick with you about Star Wars while you're here. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. You know what? I knew it was coming. I accepted. Yeah, I was just going. No. As a writer, yeah. though, it makes me really. Uh, it fuels my fire, and that's something that I noticed for the majority of people, the majority of fellow writers, at least in this genre, because I've heard otherwise. I don't know myself, but with horror or horror adjacent, um, it, it's just like kind of being a cheerleader kind of like holding hands in the sense where if you read something like like wanderers or wayward it's really fucking good and you're like i want to do something that good and you're also expressing uh the enjoyment of that book towards you in this case and it, it's just kind of cool man seeing seeing that and you cut you get that in wayward i think um towards the end if that's spoilery let me know but I, <laughs> yeah. that's what i liked about it there was not that i want a happy ending all the time but um there there's there's hope in it yeah i try to like i mean endings are tough but i'm not um a person who necessarily wants to write like a downer downer ending like a soul crushing ending i don't hate those endings like i like reading them sometimes some you know paul tremley's books are I mean, they, they're like, you know, you get to the end and you're like, I have killed you. You are dead now. I've taken your heart and stepped on it. So, and, I, and I'm like, yeah, thank you. Thank you, daddy. Do it again. So um, <laughs> I definitely don't hate that. But like when I write an ending, I also don't want it to be a happy preview. I don't feel like happy endings are like realistic either. I, I feel like in life, a lot of times everything is really complicated. And like even talking about the characters having these sort of like moral complexity and nuance to them. I like to have that nuance and the ending is itself kind of a character. And I want it to be, I like Pyrrhic victories. Like, yeah, you maybe accomplished something uh, and maybe things worked out in some directions, but then, you know, at what cost and what was lost. And I think there's important time to measure um, the successes versus what you had to pay to get to that point. And I like an ending that has that weight can't just be a, a like a frictionless joy fest like we did it like high fives everybody high fives all around like we you know there's got to be that like you know and like in survivor if you watch survivor it's always like we're lighting the torches of the people we voted off the island it's like we got to see you know what what the cost was at the end i believe it was george R. go ahead oh sorry you're not afraid to be brutal to your characters like yeah. there's not a character that is so precious you're not going to put them through the ringer yeah. and i think that is really valuable because you feel that tension like okay this is pete you love pete Pete's gonna have a hard time this is benji you love benji benji's gonna have a hard time like there's such a brutality and they have these you know soft sweet uh loving moments where they have like happiness and then they have these things that are just like i don't know who's gonna live or who's gonna die and i love that you do that and you're not afraid to pull those punches because i feel like sometimes authors can be so precious about their characters, you're like, oh, this, you know, this character is just gonna yeah. waltz away home. And and I'm reading every scene, being like, you know, we could lose any one of these guys, and I'm gonna genuinely mourn. So I just, yeah. I think that's yeah. phenomenal. Thank you. For I, I think it's best when you can't trust your storytellers. <laughs> like yeah. when I read like Robin Hobbs' assassins um, books, the uh, fantasy books. Like she was one who really taught me that, like, man, sometimes she's gonna like you're going to hurt the reader. Like she's going to reach through the page. And as she stabs the character, the knife keeps going. And then it's in your chest at the end of it. And it's like, Oh, that hurts. But it makes me feel something bad, but yet I'm like kind of into it. Like, I mean, it's weird. It's a, also, I'm it's feeling, weird. And that's great. Yeah, I'm feeling something <laughs> yeah. in, this, in this weird realm of the world we live in. So, yeah. Well, and just one more thing. And then, then I swear I'll be quiet, Pat. Um, so. No, you, no, keep talking. You didn't outline <laughs> these, right? So did you, 
know what was going to happen to your characters? Or did you have an idea where you're like, well, this is going to happen to this character, or this is going to be particularly brutal. I need to prepare myself for this. Or did you just go into it and be like, bam, you know, I've, I've exploded everything. Everyone's crying, you know? Like, I, I, yeah. Like I know some of the plot mechanism, like I know some things I want to happen um, in terms of where they're going to end up and how some things occur. But um, with the characters in particular, I, I try to just envision sort of an arc. Like I know who they are at the beginning of the thing. And I'm like, well, what's an interesting change for them? Where are they going to get to? Who are they going to become by the end of this? And then it's sort of about kind of just stitching the, you know, those pieces together to make sure that they're that way in the end. But I, even as I go, I, you know, I'll try to course correct. If it feels like either they're doing something I don't think is suitable for their character, I'll obviously try to course correct. Or if they're, if what I'm writing on the page feels truer, than maybe what I had in my mind. Cause a lot of times that's, what's really happening. I have these sort of lofty visions of like, they will do this in the end. There will be this and this success and this sacrifice. But you know, you start to kind of like get into the fiddly bits of it. And especially as they start to bounce off each other and these characters all kind of want different things. And they, some of them are acting parallel to one another and some of them are acting perpendicular to one another. And that creates a different kind of conflict and different kind of tension. Uh, I just kind of go with it. And, um, but one of the weird tricks for me is, and it's a reason I'm like a really, I'm a very, I'm not a smart person. So I need to write uh, from the beginning to the end in order. I can't do like I've Kevin Hearn, wonderful writer. He writes, he'll pick a chapter here and a chapter there. And he'll kind of like Aaron Morgenstern will do these like sort of quilts, like a square up here and a square down there. And by the end, there's a story. Uh, I cannot do that. And I think the one advantage that that has given me is that I am taking the journey along with the reader. So I am getting a sense of rhythm as I go and know when I need to change perspective or when it's time to like, that was a really intense thing. We need to break that up and move to a different, because like I, as the writer, I'm trying to like experience it as you go. So writing from start to finish, because I don't have the capacity to mix it up, uh, I think has helped uh, in that regard. Excellent. Brendan, where do you want to take us, sir? All right. I want to throw one more kind of, uh, Wanderer's wayward tangential question. So given the size, given the um, content, the, the these books draw the inevitable comparison to like Swan Song and The Stand. Yeah. So my question is, if you could only keep one, which one is it? Swan Song or The Stand? Oh, uh, it'd be Swan Song. And I hate to say that because The Stand is brilliant and I adore The Stand deeply. But the Swan Song was, for lack of a better term, it was my first. Uh, and it's just, it hit me in a way. Swan Song taught me a lot, right? Because first of all, huge epic book, giant. I think, I think the paperback I have is 987 pages. I mean, it's a monster. Um, and it was, it like at that time that I read it, I was personally feeling the like nuclear anxiety, the like, Hey, you could wake up and then everything would be annihilated. So then what? You're just like, ah, like, Oh, I could just sleep and then die. That's cool. So uh, as a book that's predominantly about nuclear attack and nuclear winter, it's weirdly comforting. Like, it's not a comforting book. It's a hard, angry, insane, like the straitjacket game and people getting buried under mountains and then keloid cancers on your face. Like, it's a mess. It's a nightmare of a book. Cockroaches and saints. Like, it's not. A, it's a very terrifying book. But, like, I don't find it that it exacerbates the fear that I have. It actually sort of cathartically got rid of it. So it, it helps deal with anxiety in a way. And I think writing hard does the same thing. But then just as a story, it's such an epic, weird, very American story. And The Stand also is brilliant. 
Um, and I love the stand. Uh, I think it's a little of a straighter line than the swan song is. Swan song does a, has a lot more janky edges and sort of turns and that you don't necessarily anticipate the stand for uh, in a good way, I think is, is definitely a little more of that Tolkien-esque sort of like good versus evil and a very clear sort of battle at the end. And um, whereas swan song is just like, what is this guy on that he's writing this book? Like, this is amazing. So, um, but just as my first, it imprinted so strongly upon me uh, in terms of horror and epic, you know, storytelling. Which version though, Brennan of the stand? Oh, that's a good question too. <laughs> I've only I, read I the uncut not, version. I, you know, I, after we had a guest pitch us on the, um, Daniel Bennett. the original version. Uh, yeah. Daniel Barnett. Um, I picked Thank it up and I have not gotten to it yet. So I've, I've, I've read the uncut version two or three times, but I still have not read the original. So I cannot answer that. I'm afraid. Yeah. I think, I think I, as like a reader of those books, I think I preferred the uncut just because it, I mean, it just gives you more. And sometimes like a story like that, you're like, I'll just take more, whatever yeah. it is, I will take more. <laughs> um, I, I, I have a vague memory of the initial one being maybe a little cleaner, um, but I don't always like cleaner. Like there's uh, uh, John Horner Jacobs, great, great writer, really one of our, just like an unsung horror writer who should be, we should have, you know, pictures of him hanging in our homes. Um, uh, this Dark Earth zombie novel, which is a really great zombie novel, but he has a chapter in there. It's just about these guys figuring out how to get a train going. And it's kind of not super connected to the rest of the story. Like talking or going back to that whole thing about like fat and flavor and what you cut and what you don't like that did not get cut. And I think if I were a merciless editor, I would have cut that chapter, but it's like the best chapter in that book. Uh, and it just sort of has like a spirit and it brings even though it doesn't bring plot points together, it sort of shows what they're fighting for and what like is what's, you know, taken and what's lost and what's the cost is. And it's such a good piece. And it's uh, I would have hate to have lost that. So sometimes I like the janky edges and the messy parts of fiction. We had him on exactly what season occurred to me. One. I was just going to say we had him on season one, didn't we? Really? Yeah, I should listen to that. He's he, great. He's smart as hell, man. He's really smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should we share an agent? Sorry, that's how I got to know. Him. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, Brian, sorry for cutting you off. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to write an uh, uh, intro to his um, Lush and Seething Hell. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's a collection. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that's exactly what kind of came to me as soon as we started talking cut versus uncut is that whole idea of does every single aspect have to serve the story? Because what you get in that uncut is, you know, you might get some storylines and some plot threads that don't necessarily take you to Las Vegas at the end. But right. um, if the writer has created an immersive world and they're giving me an opportunity to spend an extra three or 400 pages in that world, I'm going to take it. If I, right. if I want to be there, I want to be there. I'll let me explore the, you know, side quests. Yeah. And the trick is it still has to, the weird thing is it still kind of has to work like that. Those that three, 400 pages still has to be something that's interesting in some capacity, even if it's not additive in a sort of a plot sense. It's still like you, it has to be somewhere you want to live. It can't be a dull 300, 400 pages. Mm. It can't be a miserable 300, 400 pages. So that's like the sort of line. It's it's like what I say with, there's so many like nuance and so much that goes into this, like talking about writing and how, you know, so much of writing is not writing. But then also at the end of the day, so much of writing still has to be writing. Like it only matters if you actually write it at the end, just like in fiction, so much is has to be like, well, everything has to fight for its supper and everything has to be kill your darlings, do this. But at the same time, it doesn't. And you can put all this fat and flavor in there, but that fat acts as 
has to still bring flavor. It can't just be, you know, gruel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to pick your brain, Chuck, on how you... Are you going to ask me where I buried the bodies? <laughs> I figured it out by now, man. She, she, yeah, we're the Vegas. same. She gets it. Um, <laughs> also, she helped me hide them. So, I mean, that's... Just a few. Just <laughs> three or four. <laughs> I, I'd like to talk about how you raise up uh, newer writers, particularly how... The most recent one I saw was a blurb for Haley Piper's No Gods for Drowning. God, what a book. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but yeah. Oh, I wanna, it's, yeah, it's cool. I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on Pain It Forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's vital. I don't. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. It's really important. I think the writer community is not as big as you think, and I think it's important to leave a light on a ladder out um you know for for everybody's coming up behind you just as i've had people do that for me which is very nice um i've had you know the grace of kinder more powerful writers to just even lending you a word of encouragement is meaningful but then the blurb thing like i don't you know i don't know it's first of all like i'm really fortunate because i'm reading you know work by people like Kaylee or eric laraca that are just really good and Mm. far better than I could ever write. So like, I feel like I want to, I want to celebrate that. I mean, just, it's like a, such a weird honor that everyone was like, they're going to hand me their book and be like, will you say something nice about it? I mean, admittedly in a marketing context, I understand the point of it, but like, will you, will you, I hope you like this and I hope you'll say something about it. And that's an honor. Obviously I can't do it with everything. Um, just in time, in terms of timing. And sometimes a book doesn't click. Um, but generally, yeah, paying it forward is really important. Um, just because you're trying to create a community and an ecosystem that's um, existent. And if, I mean, it's such a cliched thing that like the rising tide lifts all boats, but it does. Writers are not in competition with each other. Every once in a while you have like someone gets in this tear about how we're all, you know, oh, people only have so much money and they're only going to buy so many books. Well, that's true, but um, that doesn't mean like I'm competing with you on the bookshelf. Like that's, and I understand there's only so much shelf space on a bookshelf and like, I'm not fighting Tolkien like people are he's there because people are buying his books I don't know I'm not fighting with Stephen King like that's how that works and uh, at the same time as much as it would be easy to imagine that I am somehow locked in a, a struggle with Stephen King for shelf space uh at the same time probably the reason you know we're all getting shelf space is because he started kind of horror as a thing I would say he started it but I think he really sort of like lionized it as like a bookshelf space right like Stephen King became such a big thing along with Barker and Koontz and so forth at that time um and that marked shelf space that we didn't have before. So the fact that mm. I get to do that um, is in part because of people who dug that space out. And, you know, uh, so I feel like that's something, a, a chain, there's a chain of that. And so it's worth kind of going the other direction too. It came from them and it goes from me. That's that, that well said. Uh, Mercedes, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I agree. Colleagues are not competition. Like I, I don't like that mindset and, Oh, Brandon Sanderson and his Kickstarter oh gosh, or whatever, yeah. and yeah. everyone lost their ever loving minds. And I just support writers, support yeah. people you like, support creatives. I just, I don't see the, you know, the, the attack aspect. It is just, it's, it's childish to me. Yeah. I just, I don't have time for that crap. I have real problems. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a pandemic that went on. Yeah, there's a pandemic. Yeah. There, there are things going on. I just, yeah, but but people take it so to heart and people get so invested in the fact that I don't know, I, I need to tear you down or I need to do this. And I love to support 
writers. I, I love it. I love the things that I'm reading. You know, I had a, oh my goodness, I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. Michael Harris Conan. I, I want to say I'm probably saying it backwards. Um, but he asked me to blurb one of his his collection that came out and it was beautiful. It was stunning. Oh, effects vary. Yes. Yeah, I literally just posted his guest post yesterday on Terrible Minds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I loved it so <laughs> That's much. Funny. You know, yeah. and I uh, will have to let him know. And uh, it it made my life better to read that collection. I enjoyed it. It it elevated me to read that. And you know, and he's acting like I'm doing him a favor by blurbing it. And I'm like, no. I mean, this. Thank you for this yeah. because I enjoyed it so much. And and I met him because I had judged a writing contest, and he was the winner that I had picked. Like his oh, wow. good. He's so good. And kind of soft and gentle, but brutal at the same time. Kind of reminds me of John Bowden. Um, I, I just I love John's stuff. And um, it's it's not. I mean, sometimes like like you said, you can't blurb everybody, right? I, I didn't ask you to blurb mine, um, but you can't. Blurb everybody. You can't. You know, take the time to do everybody. But it's it's humbling when somebody asks you. You know, because yeah, like you know is. how much work it goes goes into it. And when you find that that book that just clicks with you that's amazing. Like that's a gift that they gave us, you know? So why wouldn't we pay it back? Yeah. You know what? It's worth bringing up now. The reason why the biggest reason why Coco means so much to me and, and, and literally changed my life in the better perspective is because my maternal grandfather passed away in 2012 and I've always loved him. Good relationship, but it wasn't until I read Coco, which is about Vietnam vets for those that haven't read it yet. That it got me thinking, and especially after we talked with Peter, that really got me thinking if I'm sure you guys can relate to this when you read a book, if I were to write that and then it dawned on me, the Korean War, most Americans don't talk about it. It's not taught really anywhere in our school system. Sure. And I'm like, I'm a writer. So then I've been for the last year plus I've been obsessively collecting and researching the Korean War and my grandfather's time there. And um, yeah, that I thought that was kind of neat, a little neat fact to bring up and how he he met this South Korean boy over there. And I got letters uh, from him and um, not <laughs> not to me, but from him to my great grandmother. And uh, it looks like he taught him how to write English because it, it, there's three and they are in Korean characters and English above it. And then it looks like his the boy's handwriting it's it's messy english but it can only be his writing that would make sense and it's just really neat and i'm finding a connection with um a man that was pretty quiet but very loving and i didn't know that side of him and uh, he was only in, just got out of high school when he went to fight this fucked up war that's still affecting a lot of the world today so i, I felt wow. like that was kind of worth bringing up books in, in my opinion for the best of them for the best reasons can change worlds and um make everything better yeah they're like a bridge to, to readers yeah. especially the right yeah yeah um we're gonna do we're gonna wind down now and i just want to remind everyone i don't bring this up really ever anymore probably should uh we got a uh, store if you want to check that out we got hats mugs and all that go to deadheadspace.com um we're going to cover currently reading so Chuck, what are you what are you currently reading? You can say one book and however many I more. just finished um Andy Davidson's Hollow Kind. Oh, how is it, man? I want to read oh, it. I loved it. Yeah, it's like one of those things, it's like a, a slow creep, like it soaks in and just 
pickles you and it's um creepiness uh got like a nice he does like a nice thing where it'll kind of stores move this way and then there's a historical bit sort of that contributes to the present era so it's cool i like it a lot um and then i just started uh christopher golden's um all hollows his sort of halloween halloween book it's good he's, he's got, got, he's, got creepy, creepy he's a fun guy i like yeah i like him yeah, i told nice him guy. once that if he has he has such a kind countenance right i told him once if my house was on fire and i i could i I would throw him one of my children and take the other because i would believe he would catch my child yes. and run away with it to, to safety would. i believe that <laughs> and he was like a... that was weird but thank you thank you I'm <laughs> <honored>. <laughs> you're like no no I'm, this is a promise like it i'm there's gonna be I'm gonna throw children at you at some point yeah here you catch his kid and he's right. like i i swear <laughs> yeah i will catch them mercedes what are you currently reading um, well, I just finished, I just finished Wayward. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm reading, I'm starting uh, Hatchet by uh, Gary Paulson. It's that, it's like a children's book, but my daughter's reading it in school and is telling me all about it. And so I try to read what my kids are reading so that we can have a discussion where I'm just not like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So <laughs> that's, that's what I'm doing now. It's about a kid that's in a car or an airplane crash. And all he has is like a hatchet from the the crash and has to live out in the wilderness. So that's awesome. It's kind of a jump from your book to this one. <laughs> one is very, very long and very intricate. And one has like one character. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. So I am reading uh, to Nana Reeve Um Oh man. Ghost Summer. That's it. Right. Brennan. I'm yeah. going to. Yeah, I believe Ghost that's Summer. right. Yeah. Yeah. That. Um, and I'm going back and forth to uh, there's a new audio version of Joe Lansdale's Bubba Hotep, as well yeah. as. Okay. Uh, Bubba and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers, which is a prequel to uh, Bubba Hotep. Brandon, what are you currently reading? I am reading a book called Darling by Miss Mercedes. Um, now, Mercedes, you and I have talked enough uh, on this show that you probably know that this book is resonating with me, and you can pick, you can cherry pick those, re- <laughs> you can cherry pick those reasons for why it is. It um, probably hurts. <laughs> I won't go into detail because Mercedes is going to be back in a couple of weeks to talk about that book and a whole lot more, but uh, it is, yes, it is. It, it hurts, but it's also beautiful, which is just kind of um, the stamp that should go on your work um, <laughs> in general. Um, the, uh, you know what? I, I'm going to change up my second one. Cause I, I love you throwing out that you were reading hatchet uh, because you wanted to kind of have that conversation uh, my my boys are both homeschooled and they just did uh, a kind of self-directed unit on this book right here, uh, Neil oh, Gaiman's yeah. Odd and the Frost Giants. So mm-hmm. we kind of all read that together just to talk about it and, um, you know, dissect it and all that good stuff. And of course, they were super into it because they love, you know, the Marvel movies and they're seeing all these characters they know and learning kind of the... Um, uh, origins, I suppose, of the derivations of of, of where these characters came from. Um, Pat, back to you. Where are we headed? Yeah. Uh, where can people follow you, Chuck? Uh, I would say Twitter, but God only knows what's happening there now. It still, it still <laughs> exists as of this recording, so uh, I'm definitely there uh, at Chuck Winnig. But then uh, TerribleMinds.com is always a safe place to find me. Or you can find me on Instagram at Chuck underscore Winnig. I got no idea what Elon Musk is doing. Why is he oh, even? He doesn't either. So <laughs> why is why, why is he even fucking around with Twitter, man? Why can't he just do, go work on his rockets or cars or whatever the hell he's doing? Because he's terminally online. I don't get it. He's yeah. Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not smart enough to be Black Swan. <laughs> 
Mercedes, where can people follow you? Oh, I'm uh, on, I guess I'm kind of on Twitter sometimes at Mercedes MY, Instagram at Mercedes MY. I'm on Facebook, Mercedes Murdoch Yardley. Um, Mercedes M Yardley.com is my site. Brennan, where can people follow you? Brennan LaFaro on, yeah, exactly. Brennan LaFaro on Twitters and, no, no, no. We've, we've used that one. It's not, it's not funny when I do it anymore. It has to be somebody who like, you know, comes up with an original spin on it. Like, you know, my driveway when I go to get the mail or whatever. Um, I have to answer the question seriously. So on again, if, if Twitter still exists by the time this airs, you can, I'm most active there. And if it doesn't, then I might just take the opportunity to not try and learn a new platform. Oh, <laughs> uh, how nice would that be? <sighs> you can follow me at PR McDonough. Um, just guess how to spell that last name if you don't know, or Google it, whatever. And you can follow the show. It's, it's printed Headspace. at the bottom of your screen. Yeah, but not everyone watches. They listen. <laughs> True. Um, any final thoughts, Chuck? Uh, no, McDonough. Is that, um, you ever played Bioshock? Isn't there a McDonough and Bioshock? Uh, I, I love the first one and the second yeah. one's fun. It's just too short, but I don't know if there's a McDonald's. I think there's a McDonald's Bioshock. I was just replaying that. And that sounds familiar. Anyway, that's my only, I, <laughs> I believe you are conjured from Bioshock. That's my, uh, that'd be cool. <laughs> Wouldn't that'd I mean, not great. really because of a nightmare. That's true. I guess now that's I want to know what everybody's playing. You're playing Bioshock. I'm playing Xenosaga. Oh, nice. How is it? I, I love it. I, I played it before. Right. And yeah. I never finished the whole thing, but. It's not as clunky as I remembered. I, I dug out my old PS2 and so it's yeah. the old original, you know, <laughs> sure. DVDs. And it's not as clunky. It's a lot of fun. I like it a lot. Um, and next I'm doing Parasite Eve again, which is my favorite. Nice. Oh, that's a good one. Um, if you guys want hard, like a good horror game, um, Inscription, I-N-C-R-I-P-T-I-O-N. It's kind of a card game, but it it has a whole story. It's a single player thing. It's re- it's pretty creepy in an, in an awesome way. What is it for like all consoles? Oh, uh, they have it on Steam and then it's on PlayStation now, and I expect it's coming to the other consoles. Oh, okay. Yeah. I gotta ask, Chuck, did you ever play Half-Life? Oh yeah. Half-Life 2. Um I want to do the VR, Alex, but I don't have a VR rig that will support that game. But I, I Portal, great games. I, I'm huge. Mm. I loved Half-Life One. Half-Life Two is one of the mods. We I bring it up because I'm not trying to talk about other guests all the time here, but we had uh, Mark Laidlaw on and he was. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I love him. Yeah, he 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 said, you know what? I don't really want to talk about Half-Life. Been doing that for 30 years. I was like, that's fine. But he brought it up. So I got a chance to ask him about (laughs) it. Like, ah, gotcha. (laughs) But it made me think like, you know, I really wouldn't want to do that shit either. If if I got a whole slew of books, music, everything else, and you just want to talk about that one thing. I uh, (laughs) Damn. I don't know, man. Um, Mercedes, do you have any final thoughts? No, that was it. That was a brief intro of my son that decided I was done, just came and touched my nose. That's it. Just like Chuck, Chuck. this was a pleasure. Boop. This was Boop. I just enjoyed this so much. So, oh, yeah, so thank you so much. This thank is you. Awesome. Brennan, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I think it's worth throwing out that we um we have a 100 percent success rate for people named Chuck saying hey chuck when patrick says <laughs> say hey chuck um in the future we're gonna have to really strive to to, to keep that going yeah uh, without no, telling them like you have to yeah exactly you no it has to be yeah. organic um uh chuck we we appreciate your time so much on a saturday afternoon mercedes we 
always love having you on and, you know, thank you for making the time to join us. Uh, absolute pleasure. Great conversation. Thank you both. Hard thank echo. You. Yeah. My final thoughts are the same. Hard echo. Uh, next week, episode 172 is with Tanana Redu. Very excited for that one. Uh, we'll break down pretty much really anything that she's covered. So that's a lot. Um, listeners, you have many choices of podcasts. Thank you for picking up. Just oh. one more really quick question. Is is this it? Are, are you doing a trilogy of this book, Chuck? Uh, no, no, no plans as yet. Like, I didn't even plan to do the sequel. I was like, if Wander... <laughs> Sounds like an answer to me. Yeah, if Wander's like, it's supposed to be a standalone. I'm like, if people really like it and it sells well, and I think of a story, I'll write a second one. And I did, and it, it did sell well. So I, yeah, but it, so I have no plans for a third, but if it if it becomes interesting to do so, maybe I would think about it. Can I keep that part or do you want me to cut that out? Yeah, you can keep that. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Anyone else? (laughs) I don't want to cut anyone off. Oh, thank you guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Have a good one. See you guys. Take it easy, everybody.